Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way.
how many of you plan on coming tonight? Just go ahead and be honest. Raise your hand. There we go. Randy, you better raise your hand. That's right. Good deal. Choir, will you stand? This is one of the many songs that will probably be sung tonight. And although we sing to an audience of one, that's the only one I care about pleasing. Okay? I want to get that straight. But I'm going to dedicate this song to two people. This one on the piano and Mama Mole up here in the choir because this is her favorite hymn. Church, will you stand as we sing? When we all get to heaven, we'll sing and shout the victory.
sorrow sharing, Jesus says, Jesus says, He will die our burden bearing, Jesus says, Jesus says, it is done, we'll shout cross, Christ has paid redemption's cost.
but I am going to bring a special for you this morning. Uh, it's one I sung a long time ago. It has a great message. It's about our Savior. It is our Savior. He's our great and mighty King. So this song is called, Oh, What is Saviors, if you listen. Once I was straying in sin's dark valley, no hope within could I see. Just a glimpse of him in glory, and the toils of life will disappear. What a Savior. Because when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all get to heaven, we'll sing and shout of victory. But you know the verse of that song tells us that while we're here, 
we ought to sing the wondrous love of Jesus. We ought to sing it while we're here. We, we don't need to wait till we get to glory to decide that we're going to worship him. We ought to be worshiping him here on this earth, on this side of glory. I don't know about you guys, but when I played sports a long time ago in a thinner life, we used to practice a lot. We practiced all the time. When I played football, we practiced, you know, for a couple weeks in the summer, we'd practice two, three times a day. And we'd work out. And, and my old coach is here. He was close to Satan when I was in high school. But <laughs> I love him. I'm so glad he's here today. <laughs> but he used to make us practice all the time. Matter of fact, he used to. Every once in a while, he'd get right down in my ear, and he'd say, Maul, perfect practice makes perfect. Do it again, because that meant I didn't do it right the first time. <laughs> you know why we did that, though? Because the more we practiced it before the game, the better we were going to do it during the game, right? That makes sense, don't it? The more you practice it beforehand, the better you're going to be when it's time. Now, I'm not real smart. Most of you can attest to that. But I can tell you if that plays through in the football field, it doggone sure play through in, in worshiping the king of kings. So if I'm going to go to the game one day in heaven and worship at his feet, I ought to doggone sure be giving all I got to worshiping here and practice that I might get ready to sing that new song. I don't know what that song is yet, but I know what the songs are that I have here. And I ought to be worshiping and singing the wondrous love of Jesus because I have what? A Savior. That's free preaching. They ain't got nothing to do with the message this morning. But we're going to journey this morning into one of Paul's epistles. We're going to hear a word from Brother, Brother Paul that was written to Titus. And he had left Titus in a place called Crete. Uh, Titus had accompanied Paul to many cities on his missionary journeys and had set up churches with Paul. He had seen Paul depart. Titus had gone with him to many places. But, but Paul left uh, Titus in Crete to, to watch over the church in Crete and to be the pastor or the shepherd to the church in Crete. And this letter that, that Paul writes to Titus, it has much of the same language that you would find in, in the same tone and the same tenor as the letters that Paul would write to Timothy. Uh, and it kind of rings this bell throughout these letters. If you read First and Second Timothy, if you read Titus, you'll see a theme that Paul is setting in place as he's, he's writing to the pastor, he's writing to the shepherd, he's writing to the church, and he's saying this, this is how church ought to operate. This is how the church ought to, ought to look. If it's going to be a church that honors God, if it's going to be a church that glorifies God, then this is how it ought to run. And you know, the wonderful thing about these pastoral epistles, as they are often called, is that due to the fact that the same God that was, that was alive in Paul's day remains unchanged today, that means that the same words that Brother Paul was writing to Timothy and to Titus about how the church ought to operate if it's going to honor and glorify God, well, they still ring true today just as much as they did then. Now, my friends, there may be many things in this world that change. There may be many changes uh, culturally. There may be certain changes practically from certain standpoints. But my friends, the doctrinal standpoints will never change. They're, they're unchanging. The Word of God has never changed. Not one jot, not one tittle has changed from the day that Brother Paul preached it to the day that I preach it to the, to the day that my children's children go to church and hear somebody preach it. The Word of God will have never changed because God will have never changed. And if He tarries that long, these letters will be just as applicable a thousand years from now as they are today. Isn't that a beautiful thing about the Word of God? But please stand this morning if you're able... In honor and reverence for the reading of the holy words of our holy God from Titus in the second chapter. And we will read the chapter in its entirety beginning in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, 
homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your Spirit's presence as we have come to your throne of mercy with song this morning. God, we understand that your Spirit's presence is a gift. And God, we ask that you would pour that gift out upon us for the remainder of our time. God, that we would worship you fully because you alone are worthy of our worship. That if there be any thought or any feeling or any emotion in our minds or in our hearts that would hinder us from worshiping you, God, would you remove it at this time? God, if there be any devil or any demon in this place that might thwart the mind of one of your children, God, would you escort it out the door that it came in? God, that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, that we would decrease as you increase, God. Draw us nigh to you, Lord, and it's in your precious name that we pray. As all of God's children said, amen, amen. and you may be seated. Paul spent most of chapter 1 of this great epistle identifying the leadership structure in the local church. He then identified false teachers, and primarily in that time, the false teachers were the teachers from the traditional Jewish camp. They were known as those of the circumcision and basically, Paul, in direct terms, said of the false teachers, they must be stopped. And so this book is a measuring stick. Uh, it's a measuring stick by which we determine whether or not a, a, a pastor or a teacher or, or a leader of the flock is one who is, who is preaching or teaching from a false position or one who is preaching or teaching from a doctrinally sound position. And Paul says that we ought to look to this book as our guidepost. And that if the word of God is being proclaimed, it's being exhorted properly, that is a sound teacher. And that's the most important thing that a church can have is the sound doctrine. But, but Paul doesn't stop by saying you ought to set your church up this way. And then by saying you ought to look uh, for false teachers. He says, wait a minute. And in chapter 2, he starts to, to point out to us a few things that the church that honors God will look like. And he, so he goes through, and in the first ten verses, he gives us a brief description that is our first point. There are roles for all the members. There are roles for all the members. He points out first and foremost in verse 1, to speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. He says, first and foremost, before I even get into the rest of this, the members, the people in the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, you ought to speak things that are of sound doctrine. Speak only things that are of sound doctrine. Can I, can, before we move on, can I stop real quick and make this statement? More churches have split over a discussion about a man's opinion than have ever split over sound doctrine. More churches have split. More churches have splintered. More people have gone their way angry over a definition or a description of a man's opinion than will ever split over sound doctrine. Do you know why? Because we are so passionate about our own opinions. We fall in love with our own opinions. We have our own thoughts of what other people ought to do. And when they don't live up to those or when they don't do them, we hold them to our standard. Can I just tell you that our standard is not one that is understandable because it 
it is a tainted standard by sin. But when you have sound doctrine that you stand on and you speak of that first and foremost, there is no discussion. There is no argument. There is merely what is and what is not. We either agree or we disagree, but the standard has been set. It doesn't move. It doesn't waver. It doesn't change. We live to the standard of sound doctrine. Maybe people leave because you stand on sound doctrine. But the church doesn't split because it still stands on that same sound doctrine. Again, that had nothing to do with the message. But the church that honors God will be able to disagree on certain points, but will be able to come together on sound doctrine. That means we might not find ourselves on common ground on what everything ought to look like, but we can find ourselves on common ground about who we ought to honor. We might not find ourselves in agreement on how every mission or how every program ought to run, but we can find ourselves on solid ground about what every mission and every program ought to glorify. We ought to be able to stand on that sound doctrine. But he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He says we ought to stand on sound doctrine. And it's almost like Paul writes that in verse 1 as if it's a given. That if you're part of the bride of Christ, you just ought to understand that sound doctrine ought to be where it starts. So let me just say that the rest of this message doesn't apply if you don't have sound doctrine, is basically what Paul is saying. He's assuming that we're standing on sound doctrine. But then he starts to, to talk to the, to the older folks in the body. And he starts with the men. He says they're to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. And if you look at, at that in the Greek text... That, that phrase, older men, literally is translated, the men of age. So he really is talking about the aged men in the congregation. Now, I am not up here this morning about to make this mistake and try to tell you what category you're in, whether you're an aged man or not. But I will just say that Paul writes, and he speaks, that there is a group that is known as the aged in the congregation. And he says of the aged men, he says they're to be free from an intoxicating or altering influence in their mind. They are to be reverent. They're to be dignified and they should act proper. That's what that word means. They should be temperate. That literally means they should be slow to anger and stir animosity. They should be sound in faith of God. They should love completely. They should be patient and that's kind of an interesting word. That word, patient, is, is, a, is kind of a two-part word in the Greek. And it literally means under God's will. So what that means is that the aged men of the church, when it says they're to be patient, it means that they should be under the will of God even towards the end of their days. It's an idea that says they should be enduring completely by depending completely on God. And the idea from Paul, if you'll notice, as he writes to the aged men, is kind of a theme of maturity, isn't it? The older gentleman in the body of Christ, someone who is an aged believer, should be beyond certain attributes from his youth. He shouldn't be as angry and as quick to anger, perhaps, as he once was. He shouldn't be as, as, as quick to act silly at certain things. He should be one who is more patient, one who is more temperate, more, one who is more reverent, one who is an example of maturity in the house of the Lord. One who, who, when it comes to the body of Christ, is one who should have a faith that is developed over time and strengthened over time and pruned over time so that the aged men would endure life's trials differently than the young men would endure life's trials. And that he would come to a place where he depends on God for his strength. The idea that, that Paul is presenting here really is one that just makes good sense though, isn't it? If you're an aged believer and you've been a believer walking with Christ for some time and studying in sound doctrine, there ought to be things in your life that are different than they were when you were a young man. There are things in my life that are different now than they were when I was a young man. I no longer respond to certain things the way that I used to. I was with someone the other day who was reminding me of an event from my past. And he said, boy, you have come such a long way with your temper. Now, I'm not very proud to say it. But you're looking at a man that lost his temper one time and chased an ambulance through a parking lot begging the driver get out so I could whoop his tail. 
And when he wouldn't, I said, well, you're scared of, we're at a hospital, we're right close. That's funny now. But it's not really funny, it speaks of a nature of sin in my life. That I had such a temper that somebody with just a word could send me over the edge. But bless God, he's taken that away. Just the other day, I got cut off by somebody on the road, and I only chased them two miles. <laughs> but seriously, I no longer respond the way that I used to. I've got plenty of other problems, don't get me wrong. It's just one that God's worked on me with. I don't have the same temperament that I once did. And that's Paul's idea as he's writing to the aged men. But then he says of the older women, men, I'm going to get off your back for a minute. But he says to the older, to the aged women, he says you shouldn't be slanderers. That word in the Greek is a word, diabolos. He said the aged women shouldn't be speaking of diabolos. It's a word that means to defame, to criticize, to hurt, or to tear down a relationship. And Paul says to the aged women in the congregation, he says your language should not be one that tears down. It should not be a language that hurts. It should not be a language that defames or criticizes. It should be a language that builds up, that encourages, and that strengthens. He says you shouldn't be given to much wine. And you should teach good things. You should give an example to the young women, how they should love their children, how they should raise, love their husbands, how they should raise their children, how they should keep their home, how they can submit to their husbands, and how they can ensure that the word of God is not blasphemed by living a life in that way. Aged generation, and again, I'm not telling you which category you're in, but if you think that might be where you fall, can I just tell you that simply put, The aged believers should be the golden age in the church. Aged men, you should be mentoring young men. Aged women, you should be mentoring young women. The body of Christ is intended to be a place where discipleship and teaching is continuous. It starts with sound doctrine, right? We're not to teach anything but the sound doctrine. Paul said that's established. But the church should be a place where the aged and the young come together and learn. Not a place where the aged and the young come together to divide. Not where we look and say, well, this group wants to do it this way and this group wants to do it this way so we can't agree, we can't get on the same page, we can't do it together. No, instead, we ought to be able to come together, have a conversation, learn from one another. Young men, you ought to realize that there's things that the older generation can teach you. Did you know that my daddy was the dumbest man on earth until I was about 30? Somewhere between 29 and 30, my daddy became the smartest man in the world. When I look back at my own children, I say, I don't know what I'm doing. Daddy, what'd you do? I'd never asked him what he did. Because before then, everything he told me was wrong. Young men, you ought to have enough maturity about yourself to say there's something that I can learn from the aged men in the congregation. Aged men in the congregation, you ought to live your life in such a way that the young men would want to mimic you. That they would want to follow you. That they would say, that is a man in which I can learn from. He's a man that honors God and not himself. Young women, you ought to be mature enough to look to the older women and say, you've already raised your children. You've already loved your husband. You've already served in the church through those years. What can I learn from you? And aged women, you ought to look to the young women and say, how can I pour into you? We've got a role to fill in this church, and it is never one that stands apart. It is one that builds and admonishes and lifts. And our language should never be to tear one another down. Our language should always be to build one another up. So that means if you're getting ready to say something that is diabolos, critical or hurtful about someone else, close your mouth and pray. And when you get done praying, if you think you still ought to say it, then go to your house and say it in your closet. Because there is no place for that in the body of Christ. 
The body of Christ ought to be one that lifts up, edifies, and builds. If you have something with someone else that you need to discuss, take them in private and discuss it. Don't tell anybody else about it. And if you tell somebody else about it, what you've just said is my opinion on this matter is far more important than the Word of God because the Word of God said don't defame and don't criticize. Paul doesn't stop with the aged congregation though. He then says to the young men, don't worry, aged men, aged ladies, I'm coming to the young people and the admonishing is equally as tough if not worse. Paul says, show a pattern of good works. That word good there, we're going to hear it again in a minute. We might as well go ahead and talk about it. That word literally means it's an outward example of an inward good. You ought to live your life in such a way that what comes out of you reflects what went into you when you got saved. That if Jesus has saved your soul, the actions that you put out there look in such a way that nobody has any doubt what's happening inside of your heart. That Jesus abides inside of you. Young men, we ought to live our lives in such a way that if we have been saved by the grace and the glory of God, everybody sees the works that we do and says, there's something different about that young man than what used to be. There's something different about the way that he lives his life. It should show itself in a pattern. I'm not saying there won't be seasons, there won't be times when you slip and fall and slip and fail. But by and large, the pattern of your life would be one that if somebody looks at you, they'd say there's something good about him. And my friends, if there's something good about you, it's only by the grace of God because we weren't created with anything good inside of us but a nature of sin. And so if we're saved, we have something good inside that can magnify itself and come out as a good work. Young men, you need to show integrity in the doctrine. It means you don't waver on the doctrine of the Word of God. The Word of God is the standard. Sound interpretation and sound exhortation is that standard by which we will not back up, shut up, put up, or lift up. We will not move to the left. We will not move to the right. One iota for popularity. We won't do it to make somebody happy. We won't change the doctrine of God in order to do anything. Because if we do that, we're just casting our pearls before the swine. Everything we do becomes a filthy rag if we don't stand on sound doctrine. Young men live lives in such a way that if you have opposition, they can only accuse you because you've stood on firm doctrine. And when they accuse you, it will bring no shame. Whatever people may say of you cannot be evil because you have stood on sound doctrine. Talked to a friend of mine once. He was going through a difficult season in his church. There was a, a group of people that had come in. He had identified them for what they were. They, were, they, they had a, a different doctrine than a biblical doctrine on, on, on a particular subject. But they began to fester like a splinter under the skin. And they began to gain some, some followers. And they began to cause a real problem in that church. And they began to, to shout accusations towards that pastor. I said, brother, I'm praying for you. Can I do anything for you? And he said, no, I'm just glad. I'm just glad that no matter what happens, they can't make any evil word stick against me because I stood on sound doctrine. Church, that's how we ought to live our lives. That's how we ought to be marked in such a way that whatever is said about us cannot stick in an evil way because we stood on a sound doctrine and if we stand there the rest of it doesn't really matter it cannot be upheld Paul even talks to the slaves to the workers the bond servants literally it means slaves it says be obedient adhere to the doctrine of God sake of time we're not going to spend too much time there but to sum it up we've kind of seen the whole shebang right young men old men Young ladies, older ladies, slaves, right? Paul hits every facet of person that could be in the church. And the tone and the tenor is this. We all have a role to fill in the local fellowship. Well, I don't know what I can do, brother. Oh, there's something. Come and ask. 
I'm tired of doing this. I'm, I'm tired of doing that. My friend, the idea of working for the Lord is not one where you, you can read this Bible to cover to cover. You're not going to find a tap out button. You're not going to find a button where it says, hey, it's okay. You've done enough. Give up and shut up. It ain't there. The Bible is going to teach you that if you look to the life of the aged Moses, that even on the day that he dies, he kept climbing. He kept working. He kept going. He never gave up. He never shut up. The Bible is not going to give you a clear and pleasant time for you to say, you know what, I just don't feel like doing that anymore. Now, does that mean that seasons don't come where it looks different? Of course not. I'm 35 years old. There are things that I did with the youth when I was 25 that I don't do anymore. But it doesn't mean that it's time for me to stop doing anything. Now my job is to go to those who can do it with the, with the youth at the age of 25 and teach them how to do it, maybe. Or at least tell them how they ought to. That's fun, right? What I'm saying is that God may call you into a different ministry. God may call you into a different role, but God will never call you out of ministry altogether. It will not happen. To the day you die, God will not call you to stop ministering. I'm not saying that there aren't seasons where you can't do certain things. That's not what I mean at all. There are absolutely, your body doesn't allow you to do certain ministries anymore. Your time, if you have, you got four kids and a 60 hour a week job, maybe you can't teach the youth anymore. You don't have the time to pour into them that you did. You got to provide for your family in that season. But God still has a ministry for you. He still has a place for you. And you know what the beauty of being in a local fellowship is? Is that when God calls you out of a ministry, he calls somebody else into it. He's never going to leave his ministry unfilled. We just have to be obedient to do what God has called us to do and fill those roles. If the church is going to honor God. And maybe, let me make sure. Show of hands. How many of you want to be a part of a church that honors God? Okay, I just want to make sure. I just assumed we did, but I thought I better make sure. If we're going to be part of a church that honors God, then all of the pieces on the inside are going to have to be working together to fill the roles that God has called us to. We all have a role to play. It always starts with sound doctrine. Our next point this morning is this, and we're going to have to hurry now. The grace enables us for those works. We all have a role to fill, but grace is what enables us to fill those roles. The language of Paul here is in response to a believer. He says, the grace of God in salvation. We deny ungodliness. We deny worldly lust. We have sober living, godly living. All of these things are not possible on our own. These are gifts of the Spirit. These are gifts of the grace of God. You can't do these apart from the grace of God. You can't live a godly life without God. You can't deny the lust of the flesh without God. You cannot live that way without God. And so he's saying, listen, by the grace of God, you have this. For the sake of time, I want to skip ahead just a little bit, though, and skip down to verse 14 with me. Skip down to verse 14. He says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all of our lawless deeds, to purify us for himself, to make himself a special people. This means that if we are the body of Christ, if we're the bride of Christ, We've been sanctified. We have been saved for Christ. We are a people that are called by His name. We no longer have the same identity. We now have a new identity. We are now called by the name of Christ. We don't look the same. We don't act the same. We don't be the same. We should be different. Not by our own abilities, not by our own standards, but because we've been saved by the grace of Jesus and we've been redeemed. And when that happens in your life, Paul goes and he doesn't stop there. That's exciting. That's good. But he doesn't stop there. When you've been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, something happens. 
you get zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. That phrase, that word for good again, remember? An outward expression of an inward good. He starts with zealous, though. That word literally means boiling over with passion. When you get saved, you ought to boil over with a passion to show an outward expression of an inward good. That's what that means. Paul says, if you've been saved by the grace of Jesus, you ought to have something inside of you that just about explodes out so that when you open your mouth, Jesus comes out. And it ought to boil up inside of you with such a passion that if you try to cover it up, your coat bursts. You know what I mean? Like me when I put a small coat on. It just burst open because I got too much inside, right? So I got too much Jesus inside of me. I can't cover it up. What happens when I try to cover it up? It festers inside of me. It boils up inside of me. It'll make you sick physically. If you've got Jesus inside of you and you don't let him out. If you've got Jesus inside of you, you ought to want to serve him in spirit and in truth with everything that you got. There should be an outward expression of an inward good. We should be so passionate for Jesus that we can't do enough, we can't serve enough, we can't love enough, we can't forgive enough, we can't give enough because we've got so much Jesus inside of us. Church, we should look different because we are different. Do you realize that we are part of a royal lineage, that we are adopted children of the one who spoke it all into existence. We are the bride of Christ. There has been a feast prepared for you. There has been a table set before you. There's been a mansion built for you. There's been a street paved in gold for your pleasure, but for his glory. We ought to act like it. We ought to look different. We ought to respond Differently. A few things that we ought to recognize in a church that honors God. One, while we all have roles to fill, we will all fail at filling those roles sometimes. It's the way it is. When it comes to people doing stuff, we're going to fail from time to time means you're not going to fill the role the way I think you ought to. I'm not going to fill this role the way you think I ought to. We're going to fail. Paul says we don't do any of it by any merit of our own. It's all by the grace of God anyway. So when we fail, we ought to extend grace to one another. Because we ought to recognize that none of us are qualified to do any of it. Did you know that? Did you know that if, if you've taught a Sunday school class for 55 years, did you know you're not qualified to teach that class? Did you know if you have sung songs since you were four years old, you ain't qualified to sing in the choir? And I can promise you I ain't qualified to be a pastor. But by the grace of God, we're all qualified to fill a role. And we're all called to fill a role. And you know what? We're all going to fail at filling those roles from time to time. We ought to extend the grace to one another that says, listen, you ain't qualified to do it in the first place. Let's honor God together. Two, we all have roles to fill. But the saddest development in the church is the empty ministry role. Let me say that again. The saddest development in the church is the empty ministry role. There is no reason under heaven that we ought to have to beg for teachers and ministry leaders in the church. You know why you don't ever see Paul and Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and any of those guys talking about the method by which you fill certain roles is because the church that honors God, everybody ought to be clamoring for something to do. Begging for an opportunity to serve the risen king. Begging for a chance to do something for a heavenly father. 
And yet, somehow over time, we've gotten to the point that when there's an empty role in ministry, it makes the leadership sick to their stomach because they think, how am I going to get this filled? How am I going to get this done? Pastors combining Sunday school classes and teaching them themselves because they can't find anybody else to teach them. Deacons filling 45 roles in the church because they can't find anybody else to fill them. Church, we should be so overcome with gratitude for Jesus that we can't do enough. We just can't do enough. None of us can do anything in the church apart from the grace of Jesus. And my friend, unless Jesus suddenly became incapable of enabling his servants, we all have something to do. We all have something to offer. So finally this morning, our last point is this. There is an exhortation that must be present in the church that honors God. We all have a role to fill, and we're only capable to fill that role by the grace of God. But in the church that honors God, there's one thing that must be there, and that's an exhortation that must be present. Paul writes to Titus, and in verse 15, he's, he's talking to Titus as the shepherd. He says, Titus, you preach sound doctrine. You exhort and you rebuke with the authority of the word of God. In other words, my job as your shepherd, primarily, though there may be many other roles to be filled from time to time, the most important role of the pastor in the local church is to open the word, to study the word, to pray over the word, to discern the word, and to preach the word. That is the primary role of the shepherd in the Bible. How does the shepherd shepherd the flock? He teaches the flock sound doctrine. I know the pastor is the de facto head on every committee. But the most important role will always be how he handles the word of God. The church that honors God cannot be measured by numbers. It cannot always be measured by programs. But the church that honors God can always be measured by what the shepherd does when he goes to the pulpit. Does he open the word of God? And does he preach it soundly? But Paul says something else about the church that honors God. Says that when the shepherd strolls into the pulpit and preaches the sound doctrine, that the people of God don't despise him for it. The church that honors God will hear the word of God. They will respond to the word of God. They may be cut by the word of God, but they will not despise the man of God for preaching it because they will understand it is sound doctrine. They want to hear the truth. You say, well, that, that's easy, Brother Jason. Who doesn't, want to hear, who doesn't want to hear the Bible preached? Oh, my friends. The Word of God says that in the end times there will be those who seek what tickles their ears and they will despise the sound doctrine. There have been more pastors run out of pulpits for preaching the Bible than for having affairs on their wives. Because people don't want to hear the truth. Why don't they want to hear the truth? Because the truth illuminates our sin. It's not popular to stand up and illuminate the sin of people. They're not going to like you very much if you stand up and tell them that the way they've been living their life is wrong. They're not going to think it's a very popular statement for you to stand up and say, I don't care how daddy did it. I care how God said we ought to do it. But I'll have you know this, and I promise you this, any pastor who studies the Word of God, prays over the Word of God, discerns the Word of God, and strolls into the pulpit ready to preach the Word of God will have preached that message to himself all week long. And he better have found his way to his own altar and his own prayer time before he got there. So don't you think for one minute that when it comes out of the pastor's mouth, the sound doctrine that he had you in mind. God had him in mind probably. And he pruned him all week long. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of a church that honors God. I want to be part of a church that glorifies God. So how do we respond to this? 
First off, maybe you've, maybe you've checked out in the last little bit. It happens. I don't think there's anybody who's ever been to church for any length of time that can't say that at some point it happened to them. I checked out for a little while. Maybe I checked out because my family situation was so tumultuous that I just couldn't focus. Maybe I checked out because during that season of my life I needed to focus on something and my attention strayed from God to something else. Maybe my work had me so hectic that I couldn't do the things that I used to do and I pulled back. Hey, it happens. It happens. Maybe you've checked out in the last little bit. Maybe you used to come on Wednesday night to to Bible study. You used to come on Sunday night to the second service. Maybe you used to come to Sunday school. Maybe you used to do all these things and you just kind of, you backed out of them. You probably backed out of them for a good reason. there, There are reasons to back out of something for a spell. Maybe your response this morning is to realize that you've got a role to fill. And part of that role, quite honestly is if you're a member of the church, you ought to fellowship with the church. There again, I know that ain't going to be a real popular statement. But when you say that you're going to join together with the saints at Rocky Valley Baptist Church and worship at Rocky Valley Baptist Church, we meet on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and it ought to be your desire to be here. Listen, y'all know me. It's been two and a half years. Y'all know me well enough by now. I ain't going to browbeat you when you don't show up to a service. Don't show up to a bunch of them, I'm going to give you a call. But I'm not going to browbeat you when you don't come to a service. But I am going to tell you that the fact of the matter is you ought to want to fellowship with the believers. You ought to want to come together with the other saints. So maybe your response is this. God, give me the zeal that I used to have to fill the role that I am to fill. Give me the zeal that I used to have to serve you, to do the good works, to let my passion for you overflow in the way that I live my life again. God, give me my zeal. Can I just tell you something? God didn't move. The zeal is right where you left it. It's right there when you left it for whatever reason that you left it. Just go back and pick it up. He's still there. So ask him to give you that back. Maybe you're here this morning. You've been critical of someone in their ministry. You've looked at the way they do their ministry. And you've done nothing but tear them down. And you realize this morning there's no place for that in the house of the Lord. Won't you come this morning and say, God, forgive me. Give me an uplifting tongue instead of one that tears down. God, don't give me a defaming attitude. Give me one that builds up. And maybe you're here, you haven't been filling that role that God has called you to, and you know it. You know what you're capable of, and you know what you've been doing. I don't have to tell you. You know. Won't you come this morning and say, God, renew my passion. Give me the same zeal that I had when I started down this road. And help me to do it to honor and to glorify you. Maybe you're here this morning you've never served God because you don't know him. Never been saved. You ain't got a clue what I'm talking about, what it, what it means to bowl over with passion. Would you come this morning? And accept the grace of Jesus Christ. He died for your lawless deeds just as he did for all of us. That you might be forgiven. That you might be saved. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we come to you this morning. Thankful for another opportunity to worship here in your house, God. Thankful that we have a doctrine that is sound to stand on thankful that if we've been saved, we've been saved for a purpose. Thankful that you have something for us. God, would you prick the hearts of your people this morning and convict them where they've fallen short. God, renew a passion. God, would you give people the courage and the conviction to come flood your altar and say, I want to glorify you, God. God, renew my zeal for serving you. Renew my passion for working for you. God, help me to work in such a way that it honors and glorifies you. God, if there be a spirit of defamation, of of criticism, God, convict us. Because there is no place for that in the church that honors God. 
touch our souls, touch our hearts. Cause us to want to be a people that lift instead of tear. God, be glorified in this house. For it is in your holy name that we pray, God. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.